2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 43rd episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last episode, we followed a bit of a rabbit trail into the future to see what happened to Arlington, the home of Robert E. Lee and his family. So we hope y'all enjoyed that show. And this time we return to Virginia, where we'll start off once again in the northeast part of the state near Washington, D.C., but then we will end this episode out in the western part of the state, in the section that eventually splits off and becomes West Virginia.
2: On May 28, 1861, a few days after Union forces secured that foothold on the Virginia side of the Potomac River across from Washington, D.C., Brigadier General Irvin McDowell crossed the river to formally assume command of the Department of Northeastern Virginia. While the Federal soldiers drilled and also labored at building the line of for fortifications that would protect the approaches to the capital city, McDowell went to work organizing the regiments of his growing army into three brigades. To command them, he selected regular Army colonels Samuel Heinzelman, Charles P. Stone, and David Hunter, all of whom had previously outranked him.
0: McDowell was also a regular Army officer, but he'd recently been promoted, He had jumped straight from major to brigadier general.
2: Exactly. And we should maybe explain why on the podcast we keep talking about regular army officers and about soldiers in the regular army. So, well, with the buildup of Union forces at the start of the war, the regular U.S. Army was expanded but it still remained relatively small compared to the huge number of volunteer soldiers from each northern state who signed up to fight. And the volunteer soldiers from every northern state, such as those who fought in the 1st Minnesota, or the 20th Maine, or the 11th New York, or what have you, um, they remained just that, volunteer soldiers. They signed up, like for three-month or three-year enlistments. But they were still essentially citizen soldiers. And at the end of their enlistments, or the end of the war, they would take off their uniforms and return to civilian life. But soldiers who volunteered for the regular army usually planned on making it their full-time job, so to speak. Uh, I think enlisted men in the regular army signed up for five years at a time. But uh, So, for instance, at First Manassas, Which we'll get to eventually. The Union Army there had a battalion of regulars amongst the many volunteer regiments. And then with officers, there was also a distinction between those who held commissions in the regular army and those who held volunteer commissions. Those officers who held commissions in the regular US Army before the war were professional soldiers, usually graduates from a military academy. West Point being the most common, uh, but then during the war, commissions in the regular army, because they were considered um, superior and held more prestige than volunteer commissions, but commissions in the regular army were also given out as uh, rewards, I guess is the best word, um, to men who weren't necessarily professional soldiers, but who proved exceptionally competent as leaders, or else less exceptionally um, for politically expedient reasons. Uh, So anyway, we just wanted to make sure everyone understands that in the Union Army, there was a distinction between regular Army units and volunteer formations, and between officers who held commissions in the regular Army and those who held volunteer commissions.
0: That might be a bit confusing, but we hope it made some sense. All right, well, let's get back to northeastern Virginia in May 1861. As federal strength grew around Alexandria, reconnaissance patrols were sent out into the countryside to probe the Confederate defenses. Of special interest was the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, which ran west from Washington for 30 miles and then connected with the Manassas Gap Railroad at the small burg of Manassas Junction.
2: We'll talk about it in more detail later on, But beginning right here, uh, you guys should always keep in mind that during the Civil War, railroad lines often assumed great significance during military campaigns. During the Civil War, and indeed in all wars, logistics, that is the work of moving your armies and of keeping your armies supplied, logistics was critically important and the transportation of supplies was the most difficult of all logistical matters. In other words, how you got supplies to your army was something you always, always needed to be concerned about. You see, back in the olden days when the Civil War was fought, transportation of supplies by wagon was really an enormous undertaking. For example, just considering the horses and mules you would use to pull the wagons that would haul supplies to your army, well each horse required 14 pounds of hay and 12 pounds of grains per day, and each mule required 14 pounds of hay and 9 pounds of grains per day. So you would have to be hauling tons of feed for your transport animals besides the supplies you were taking up to your army. And all of that's to point out that transport of supplies by water or rail was much more efficient, and that's why it was used whenever it was possible. And so as we'll see all throughout our discussion of the war, rivers and rail lines assumed critical strategic significance, and not just because you could more easily move supplies along them, but also, of course, because you could use them to transport troops from point to point.
0: And so that's why the Orange and Alexandria Railroad's connection with the Manassas Gap Railroad at Manassas Junction was vitally important, because the latter line connected the Shenandoah Valley with northeastern Virginia. The Manassas Gap Railroad was not only allowed for the transportation of supplies from the fertile breadbasket of the Shenandoah Valley, but it also allowed Confederate forces to rapidly shift eastward or westward in northern Virginia and concentrate wherever the Union threat was greatest. And as we'll see later on, this is exactly what happens in July at the First Battle of Manassas.
2: But for now, in late May 1861, both sides could read a map, and so they realized everything we've just been talking about. And so everyone knew that the Orange and Alexandria Line would inevitably be the axis of advance for a Union army marching southward from Washington. And the objective of such a Union army would clearly be Manassas Junction, because by capturing that point, the Union army would cut the important Confederate rail connection with the Shenandoah Valley. And so that finally brings us back to the Federal army steadily growing in strength around Alexandria and the reconnaissance patrols being sent out into the countryside of Northern Virginia to probe the Confederate defenses. Those Confederate defenses received their first test when one such Union patrol, a 75-man force of regular Army cavalrymen and dragoons, commanded by Lt. Charles Tompkins, trotted west along Fall Church Road on May 31st. At 3 a.m. the next morning, the Union horsemen approached the village of Fairfax Courthouse and quickly stirred up a hornet's nest of resistance.
0: Fairfax Courthouse was 14 miles northeast of Manassas Junction, and about the same distance west of Alexandria. The village was defended by the Virginia militia of the Prince William Cavalry and the Warrington Rifles. Lieutenant Colonel Richard S. Ewell, who later on in our story will command a corps in the Army of Northern Virginia, but here at the start of the war, Ewell was in command of the largely untrained and ill-equipped Confederate forces at Fairfax Courthouse, but he had only recently arrived in the village. Captain John Quincy Marr, a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute, was the commanding officer of the Warrenton Rifles.
2: In the dark early morning of June 1st, the advancing Union horsemen surprised two Confederate pickets outside the village. But apparently, either one of the pickets escaped to sound the alarm, or else the gunfire from this encounter with the pickets alerted the rest of the Confederates, But regardless, Lieutenant Tompkins made the decision to still continue approaching the village.
0: Once the alarm was sounded, there was, not surprisingly, some confusion among the Confederates in the village, but Captain Marr managed to get the ninety men in his company formed up in the darkness in a clover field by the Methodist Church. But then, as most of the Confederate cavalrymen fled the approaching Union horse soldiers, and in their defense, the 120 southern horsemen had few firearms and little ammunition. But anyway, the hapless Confederate horsemen ran into Marsmen, and in the darkness and confusion, Marsmen opened fire on their comrades. Hard on the heels of that Confederate-friendly fire incident, the Union cavalrymen came galloping through Fairfax Courthouse. As the Federal Horse Soldiers charged through the village, they randomly fired right and left, and sometime in the midst of that shooting, Captain Marr was hit, because after that first charge, the Confederate infantrymen couldn't find their commander. His body would be found in the clover field later that morning, and so John Quincy Marr was the first Confederate officer to be killed in action during the Civil War.
2: One has to question Lieutenant Tompkins' decision to charge into the village in the darkness, and facing an unknown number of the enemy. It seems like quite the boneheaded move, but having galloped through Fairfax Courthouse from east to west, Tompkins then decided it would be a good idea to have his men charge back through the village. In the meantime, though, 64-year-old former Virginia Governor William Extra Billy Smith, who just happened to be spending the night in the village hooked up with Ewell and took charge of about 50 of Mars' now leaderless men and got them formed up again, facing westward, so that the Confederate infantrymen would be in position to stop the Union horsemen should they return. And well, sure enough, the Federals came galloping back into the village, but a volley from the Confederates turned them back.
0: Even though they'd successfully repulsed that charge, Smith and Ewell realized that Confederate infantry weren't in the best defensive position possible so they quickly moved back to another spot, there putting the men behind fences that lined both sides of the turnpike. And so when the Union cavalry came on for another try at escaping back through the village, heavy fire from the better positioned Confederates turned them back yet again. After exchanging fire with the Confederates, the Union cavalry then decided discretion was the best part of valor, since their attempts to bludgeon their way back through Fairfax Courthouse weren't working, and so they tore down some fences and escaped through the fields around the village.
2: Judith McGuire, a resident of Fairfax Courthouse, had her slumber disrupted by the clash of arms that took place in her little village. McGuire watched as the Union troopers repeatedly attempted to fight their way back through the rebel line.
0: Judith later recalled, quote, About three o'clock in the night we were aroused by a volley of musketry not far from our windows every human being in the house sprang up at once. We soon saw by the moonlight a body of cavalry moving up the street, and as they passed below our window—we were in the upper end of the village—we distinctly heard the commander's order, Halt! They again proceeded a few paces, turned, and approached slowly. In a few moments there was another volley, the firing rapid, and to my unpractised ear there seemed the discharge of a thousand muskets. Then came the same body of cavalry rushing by in wild disorder. Oaths loud and deep were heard from the commander. They again formed and rode quite rapidly into the village. Another volley, and another, then such a rushing as I never witnessed. While the balls were flying, I stood riveted to the window, unconscious of danger. When I was forced away, I took refuge in the front yard. Mrs. B was there before me, and we witnessed the disorderly retreat of eighty-five of the Second United States Cavalry before a much smaller body of our raw recruits. End quote.
2: The Confederate casualties in this affair were one dead, two wounded, and five men captured by the Yankees. One of the wounded was Yule. Sometime in the midst of the fighting, Yule was hit in the shoulder thus becoming the first Confederate field-grade officer to be wounded in the war. Upon his return to the Federal lines, Lieutenant Tompkins reported that his patrol had faced over a thousand Confederates at Fairfax Courthouse, but in reality there were only about 210 men in the enemy force. Union losses were one dead, four wounded, including Lieutenant Tompkins, and one missing. They also had nine horses killed and four wounded. Quite incredibly, given his questionable judgment throughout this engagement, Tompkins, in 1893, 32 years after the fact, Tompkins was awarded the Medal of Honor. His citation reads, Twice charged through the enemy's lines, and taking a carbine from an enlisted man, shot the enemy's captain.
0: It should be noted that besides that citation, no other credible account or source credits Tompkins himself with shooting Captain Marr, but regardless, the skirmish at Fairfax Courthouse thus became the first action in the Civil War for which a Union officer was awarded the Medal of Honor. In 1904, a monument to John Quincy Marr was erected in front of the county courthouse, where it can still be seen today.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, grey history dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous reign of terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution.
2: In this next part of the episode, we're leaving the area in northeastern Virginia, close to Washington, D.C., and we're heading out to the western part of Virginia. And again, a railroad line plays a significant factor in what happens, as Union forces moved to secure the important Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, but those Union forces moved into Western Virginia for political as well as strategic reasons. Just to backtrack a bit, but it's important to remember that when Virginia's Secession Convention voted to leave the Union on April seventeenth, only five of 31 delegates from the state's western counties approved the Secession Ordinance. And then, when the statewide referendum took place on May twenty-third, voters in the same region rejected secession by a three-to-one margin. That overwhelming rejection of secession was really the culmination of a long-standing tension between eastern and western Virginia. According to the eighteen-sixty census, the thirty-five counties of Virginia west of the Shenandoah Valley and north of the Kanawha River. Contained a quarter of the state's white population. But slaves and slave owners were relatively rare among the small farmers who lived in the narrow valleys and steep mountainsides of western Virginia. The rugged region's culture and economy were more connected to nearby Ohio and Pennsylvania than to the faraway lowlands of eastern Virginia. The largest city in the region, Wheeling, was only 60 miles from Pittsburgh but 330 miles from Richmond. For decades, the tough mountaineers of Virginia's western counties were underrepresented in the state legislature and they nursed legitimate grievances against the tidewater aristocrats who governed the state. For example, slaves were taxed at less than a third of their market value while all other property was taxed at full value. And the lion's share of internal improvements went to the eastern counties.
0: In a later episode of the podcast, we'll talk more about the formation of the new state of West Virginia. But for now, just remember that in 1861, shortly after the start of the war, Union forces moved into Western Virginia for political as well as strategic reasons. Governor William Dennison of Ohio was particularly keen for Union forces to go to the aid of those Unionists in western Virginia, especially since doing so would push the border of the Confederacy away from southeastern Ohio. Like many other northern states, Ohio raised more regiments than called for in Abraham Lincoln's April 15th proclamation. In fact, Ohio raised so many regiments that the state was accorded a volunteer major generalcy by the War Department, and Governor Dennison wanted to give that commission to George Brenton McClellan. When the war broke out, McClellan, a West Point graduate and Mexican war veteran, was a civilian living in Cincinnati, serving as president of a railroad company. But nevertheless, at the start of the war, besides Ohio, this former Army star was also offered a general's commission by the governors of Pennsylvania and New York, but McClellan chose to go with Ohio.
2: We've mentioned McClellan previously on the podcast, and he plays an important role in our story from here on. But for right now, we want to keep moving forward. So we'll wait until the next episode to talk in more detail about McClellan's background.
0: Within a month of accepting Governor Dennison's offer to command his state's volunteer regiments, the War Department elevated McClellan to command the newly organized Department of the Ohio which at the start of the war eventually eventually included Missouri, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, western Pennsylvania, and western Virginia. He was also promoted to major general in the regular Army, instantly catapulting him ahead of every other officer in the Army except Winfield Scott, the old general-in-chief.
2: McClellan's first job was to protect the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. The most direct link between Washington and the Midwest the B&O would play an important role in Civil War logistics. It passed through some of the most rugged terrain in the East, and at the time it was considered an engineering marvel. But it was also vulnerable to Confederate interdiction. In May 1861, the Confederates at Harper's Ferry had already cut the railroad, while rebel militia in northwest Virginia occupied the important rail hub at Grafton and burned bridges along the line west of there. For McClellan, the threat to the vital Baltimore and Ohio was the trigger that caused him to invade northwestern Virginia. On May 26, McClellan ordered units from his command, along with two Unionist Virginia regiments, to carry out an operation designed to secure the B&O rail line in northwestern Virginia. The initial objective of the operation would be the Baltimore and Ohio junction at Grafton, 60 miles south of Wheeling. And so, in response to McClellan's orders, on May 27th, Colonel Benjamin F. Kelly led his 1st West Virginia Regiment and parts of the 2nd West Virginia, southeast from Wheeling, following the rail line, repairing bridges as he went.
0: And just to note, but for ease of reference, we'll refer to the two Unionist Virginia Regiments as the 1st and 2nd West Virginia Regiments.
2: Right. But anyway, Kelly and his two West Virginia regiments, was supported in his advance from Wheeling by the 15th Ohio and the 16th Ohio. Meanwhile, another column, made up of the 14th and 18th Ohio regiments, crossed the Ohio River downstream at Parkersburg and marched eastward, advancing on Grafton following the line of the Northwestern Virginia Railroad.
0: Over on the Confederate side, Colonel George A. Porterfield, a VMI graduate, quickly learned of the Union advance and decided to withdraw his small command from Grafton. Porterfield had been sent west to Grafton by Robert E. Lee, who confidently predicted that Porterfield would be met by 5,000 recruits eager to enlist in the Confederate Army. With those recruits, as well as militia companies from nearby counties, Porterfield was to secure the B&O line north to Wheeling and also the northwestern Virginia Railroad line that ran west to Parkersburg. But Lee's optimistic estimate in no way matched the reality that Porterfield found in northern northwestern Virginia. As we've already mentioned, enthusiasm for secession in the region was, at best, lukewarm, and so Porterfield found that only a handful of recruits and militiamen answered his call to arms. The recruits showed up unarmed and untrained, and of course, and even most of the militia who appeared, had no arms except for what they might have brought from home, and little or no military training. One company of local militia, a cavalry unit, had 40 sabers and one pistol. Another cavalry company had no arms, but was inordinately proud of its, quote, real good tents, end quote. Later, Porterfield reported that on the day his command was attacked at Philippi, it numbered 600 infantry and 173 cavalry. This was the force with which he had been expected to hold over 200 miles of militarily vital railroad track.
2: After learning that Union troops were on the move, Porterfield knew his small, ragtag command had absolutely no hope of holding Grafton. So he wired Richmond and reported that he was moving back to Philippi, 15 miles to the south, where he expected reinforcements and supplies. And so Colonel Kelly, and his column of Union troops... the the force that had advanced from Wheeling, entered Grafton on May 30th and occupied the place without firing a shot. That day, the other Federal column, the one advancing from Parkersburg, camped near Clarksburg, west of Grafton. Now, Grafton was the real prize, it being the site of the rail junction, and Philippi had no strategic significance at all But since the only sizable Confederate military presence in the region had withdrawn back to Philippi, plans were laid for the two Union columns to continue their advance southward, converge on the place, and bag the Confederates in a pincer movement.
0: Before the two Union columns moved out, Brigadier General Thomas A. Morris of Indiana arrived with a brigade of troops from his state, and by virtue of his rank, Morris assumed overall command of the expedition from Colonel Kelly. But Morris approved Kelly's plan for the movement on Philippi, although he postponed the start of the operation by a day until June 3rd. The plan was for Kelly to lead the eastern column, which was comprised of 1,600 men of the 1st West Virginia, Ninth Indiana, and 16th Ohio. The western column would be made up of the 7th Indiana, elements from the 6th Indiana, the 14th and 15th Ohio, and two companies of the 1st Ohio Light Artillery. This force would be commanded by Colonel Ebenezer Dumont of the 7th Indiana.
2: Ebenezer is a cool name, and you don't hear it much anymore.
0: <laughs> if at all. So anyway, as the two Union columns marched south, they would be separated by the Tigart Valley River. The two columns were to make a nighttime march and converge on Philippi at 4 a.m. on the morning of June
2: 3rd. Once the Union columns started to march southward, sympathetic local civilians made their way to Philippi and informed Porterfield of the enemy advance. Forewarned, Porterfield conferred with his staff on June 2nd, and it was agreed that the Confederate force would withdraw again, this time to Beverly, about 30 or so miles farther south where Porterfield, eternal optimist that he was, again hoped to find reinforcements and supplies. So preparations for the march to Beverly were completed, but the order to move out wasn't given. Porterfield had decided to delay the march until the next morning. Well, that night, the night of June 2nd, June 3rd, the drenching rain was so uncomfortable that the green and undisciplined Confederate pickets left their posts without permission, and sought drier and warmer accommodations. And so, as over 3,000 Federal troops marched through the dark and stormy night, converging on Philippi, the Confederate force there was about to be caught with its pants down. An officer at the house being used as the Confederate headquarters, looked out a window into the darkness and pouring rain, and exclaimed, "'Hell!' Any army marching tonight must be made up of a set of damned fools.
0: Despite the rain, darkness, and lack of familiarity with the local roads, the Union attack plan still almost went off without a hitch. Dumont double-timed the western column the last hour, shouting, Close up, boys! Close up! His column arrived first, a bit before four o'clock on the morning of June 3rd, and formed up on Talbot's Hill, overlooking the sleeping town. Kelly's column to the east had a longer march over worse roads, and so it was a bit late. A portion of Kelly's column was supposed to block the turnpike leading out of Philippi to the south, and because that detachment wasn't yet in position when the attack started prematurely, most of the Confederate force was able to escape the Union trap.
2: The Union attack started prematurely because of a feisty lady named Mrs. Thomas Humphreys. Mrs. Humphreys lived near the top of Talbot's Hill, and when she was awakened by Dumont's men deploying nearby, she attempted to send her twelve-year-old son Oliver riding on a horse into Philippi to warn the Confederates. But alert Federal soldiers unhorsed the boy, and in the ensuing scuffle with the men, Mrs. Humphreys pulled out a pistol and loosed off a shot at the Yankees. Well, she didn't hit anyone, but the sound of the pistol shot did cause the Union artillerymen, manning two six-pounders nearby on the hilltop, to think the attack had started, and so they opened fire on the unsuspecting Confederate camp below.
0: That cannon fire served as a rude wake-up call for the slumbering Confederates, Surprise was complete, and it was only because the Union blocking force from Kelly's column was not in position that any of the rebels escaped at all. But still chaos reigned amongst the Confederates, and their helter-skelter flight from the Union trap could not be stemmed. In spite of Porterfield's personal bravery and his efforts to rally his command into some semblance of disciplined order, the Confederates fled in confusion, abandoning weapons, tents, and supplies as they ran out of town on the road toward Beverly. Sergeant John L. Hill, of one of the Virginia Militia Cavalry Companies, later recalled, As the gray dawn of morning appeared in the east, we were startled by a loud explosion, which at first I supposed to be a musket overcharged. "'Another report with a terrible crash among the tents in our camp in which we were sleeping, "'with the cry, the enemy, the enemy,' made some twenty of us hasten to our horses in double-quick time. But this time there was one constant roar, and the balls were falling and skipping all around us. All was now confusion. Horses broke their bridles, and fled minus bridles, saddles, and riders.' The infantry was marching toward Dixie's Land in great disorder. All our baggage, wagons, and about five hundred Virginia muskets fell into the hands of the enemy. End quote.
2: On the federal side, Lieutenant Charles Lieb described the surprise attack this way quote, Their route was complete. They left behind arms, ammunition, clothing, horses, wagons, subsistence stores, and a very large number of letters written by hands of fair rebels congratulating them upon the spirit of patriotic devotion which had induced them to volunteer in defense of southern rights. The troops pushed forward, and would have taken the whole camp by surprise, had not a woman, living within half a mile of it, hearing the tramp of the men, fired a pistol which alarmed the pickets, who roused the camp. When the charge was made, some ludicrous scenes occurred. Dozens of the flying soldiery were seen rushing along the road, with their coats in one hand, their pantaloons in the other, and the white flag streaming out behind. Others were barefooted, while one fellow had only time to get one leg into his breeches and in the hurry to get in the other, lost his balance and fell to the ground. Correspondent Whitelaw Reed of the Cincinnati Gazette described the rousting out of the Confederates with, cannonballs crashing into their huts and stirring out the rebels like a stick thrust into a hornet's nest, end quote.
0: If Dumont had been able to delay his attack just a few moments, Kelly's troops would have been able to capture most of the Confederates. But as it was, Porterfield's command was shattered. During their precipitous flight, the Southerners lost precious supplies, including 750 stands of arms, much of their ammunition, commissary supplies, wagons, horses, medical supplies, and camp equipment. The record on Confederate casualties is a bit sketchy, but it appears they had one wounded, one wounded and captured, and four others captured. Only five Yankees were wounded at Philippi. One of them was Colonel Kelly, who was shot in the chest and thought to be mortally wounded, but he eventually recovered. The only Union death during the operation was a private in the 7th Indiana who accidentally shot himself on the march to Philippi and bled to death.
2: Northern newspapers soon carried headlines of the skirmish, which they dramatically dubbed the Philippi Races and turned it into a spectacular Union victory. But the Federals failed to pursue the panicked Confederates and so missed a golden opportunity to quickly and easily clear the entire Tigart Valley of the enemy. On the plus side, though, the entire operation went a long way toward securing the Union's control over the important Baltimore and Ohio rail line, and on the political front, the Union seizure of Grafton and victory at Philippi provided an enormous boost to Unionist sentiment in northwestern Virginia, and that benefit of the operation should not be discounted. When news of the debacle at Philippi reached Richmond, there were quick and sharp repercussions. A court of inquiry met at Beverly on June 20th, and as a result, Porterfield was relieved of his command and replaced by Robert E. Lee's Adjutant General, Brigadier General Robert S. Garnett. And we'll talk more about Garnett in the next episode, when McClellan's forces sweep up the Tigart Valley and battle the Confederates at Rich Mountain.
0: These small-scale clashes and skirmishes at the beginning of the Civil War would hardly have garnered much notice at all if they had taken place later on in the war, when butchery was taking place on a large scale in monumental battles and campaigns. But since these clashes and skirmishes did take place at the beginning of the war, when the horrific casualties and monumental battles and campaigns of later on were still unimaginable, These early engagements took on a significance of their own, especially in the public mind. And of course, to those who took part in them, these first clashes were notable and of great consequence on a personal level.
2: A great example of this can be found at Philippi, where an 18-year-old Confederate soldier named James Edward Hanger was wounded by one of the first Union cannonballs fired from up on Talbot's Hill. Hanger had been an engineering student at Washington College, now Washington and Lee University, but he left his studies to join two of his brothers who had already enlisted in the Confederate Cavalry. James had only arrived in Philippi on June 1st, and just two days later, on the morning of June 3rd, he was standing guard outside a barn that his cavalry unit was using as a stable when the Union attack started. Just after he rushed into the building seeking protection from the incoming fire, A cannonball crashed through the wooden wall of the barn and smashed into James' leg. Lapsing in and out of consciousness, James was eventually discovered by the victorious Union soldiers. And then, for nearly an hour, Dr. James Robinson, a Union doctor, labored to amputate Hanger's leg at mid-thigh. It was the first amputation performed by a Union doctor during the Civil War. Despite the incredible loss of blood and unsanitary field conditions, James survived the amputation. As a prisoner of war, he convalesced under the care of union doctors and nurses, and he was fitted with the standard artificial leg of that day, basically just an awkwardly fitting, heavy piece of wood. But then after two months in captivity, he returned home after a prisoner exchange, and he retreated to his room emerging three months later in the fall of 1861. As he walked down the stairs, his surprised family saw that he had designed and built his own artificial leg. Whittled from barrel staves, it incorporated a double-articulated extending knee, and the world for him and other amputees would never be the same.
0: By custom-fitting a prosthesis to make it more comfortable and designing it to restore natural functioning as completely as possible, Hanger created an artificial limb clearly superior to all others. James was commissioned by the Confederate government to make artificial limbs for other wounded soldiers. Originally based in Richmond, Virginia, Hanger's company grew rapidly, both during and after the Civil War. By 1888, the company had moved to Washington, D.C. and had branches in several other U.S. cities. World War I created the need for quality prostheses in Europe, and so Hanger's operations were expanded overseas. By the time of his death in 1919, James Hanger's company had branches in London and Paris. Today, Hanger Orthopedic Group is the world's leading provider of prosthetics and orthopedics. One hanger patient is Aaron Ralston, the hiker who became famous in 2003 after he amputated his right arm with a pocket knife to free himself from a fallen boulder. His story was made into the 2010 movie 127 Hours. Another hanger patient is Winter, a bottlenose dolphin who lost her tail after she became entangled in a rope attached to a crab trap off the coast of Florida. Her story was made into the 2011 movie Dolphin Tale. Today Winter lives at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium in Clearwater, Florida, and she swims normally with her silicone and plastic tail.
2: And so, the extraordinary experience of a young Confederate soldier grievously wounded at Philippi, one of the Civil War's first clashes, has impacted the lives of millions of people over the last 150 years. Well, the lives of millions of people and one very special dolphin.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is An American Iliad, The Story of the Civil War by Charles Rowland.
2: Since most of our book recommendations are usually pretty specific, having to do with a particular topic or person or whatnot, um We want every once in a while to recommend a general history of the war. And so that's what this recommendation is. An American Iliad is one of the three or four general histories of the Civil War that we find ourselves constantly turning to for the bigger picture as we research and write the podcast. So that's An American Iliad, the Story of the Civil War by Charles Rowland. And as always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: We want to thank y'all for continuing to give us those great five star ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thank you. That helps other people discover the podcast on iTunes.
2: And thanks to everyone who's still joining our growing little community on Facebook. Just this past week, we went over uh, 300 likes, which we think is pretty cool. As I think we have mentioned before, neither Tracy nor I had ever been on Facebook before we decided to start a history podcast, so these milestones make us ridiculously excited. And uh, Facebook is still the way most of you choose to communicate with us. Uh, We do hear from some of you through uh, Twitter and by email too, of course, but the majority of you who we've heard from have got in touch with us through Facebook.
0: And then as we close, we want to thank each of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week when we cover more of the war's early action in Western Virginia. But until then, take care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye.